evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. President Biden appears in a Twitter video after testing positive for COVID-19. He's vaccinated and double boosted. What the White House is saying about the president's condition. House Republicans lay out steps to deter the Chinese Communist Party. This as Biden reveals his timeline for talks with China's Xi Jinping. What lawmakers are telling us. And the message to the dictator Xi should be clear that we will support a sister democracy. With the Senate passing the CHIP Act aimed at cutting U.S. dependence on China and Taiwan, we get former Undersecretary of State and Nobel Peace Prize nominee Keith Crock's view on the issue. Steve Bannon's defense team makes its case but didn't call any witnesses. What his attorney said about his contempt of Congress charge. Is the NBA controlled by China? NBA free agent and human rights activist Ennis Freedom says a leaked recording proves it is. New York health officials reported Thursday that an unvaccinated young adult recently contracted polio. It's the first U.S. case in nearly 10 years. Officials are investigating how the infection happened and whether it spread to other people. And they've scheduled vaccination clinics in New York for Friday and Monday. They're encouraging unvaccinated people to get polio shots. President Biden tested positive for COVID-19 this morning. He later posted a video on Twitter reassuring Americans that he's doing well. The White House COVID response coordinator also confirmed that the president is in good condition. Hey folks, guess you heard this morning I tested positive for COVID. But I've been double vaccinated, double boosted. Symptoms are mild. And, uh, and I really appreciate your inquiries and your concerns. But I'm doing well. I'm getting a lot of work done. I'm going to continue to get it done. And, uh, and in the meantime, thanks for your concern. And keep the faith. It's going to be okay. He sounded great. I asked him, you know, Mr. President, how are you feeling? He said, I'm feeling fine. Because the president is fully vaccinated, double boosted, his risk of serious illness is dramatically lower. He's also getting treated with a very powerful antiviral. The White House says the president has begun taking Plaxivit to help with his symptoms. He will isolate at the White House until he tests negative per White House protocol. His spokesperson says he will continue to carry out all of his duties from his residence, including planned meetings via Zoom and phone. House Republicans are stepping up to calls to deter the Chinese Communist Party. This as they cite increasing threats that Beijing poses to the democratically ruled island of Taiwan and also to the United States. NTD's Iris Tao has more. As we have learned in Ukraine, deterrence comes before conflict, not after it. House GOP leader and members of the Congressional China Task Force are calling to boost arms sales to Taiwan and that they say it's for the good of the United States. We need to arm Taiwan right now. General MacArthur said Taiwan in the hands of the communists would be an unsinkable aircraft carrier and submarine base ideally located to accomplish offensive strategy. Thank you, Leader McCarthy. The Wednesday roundtable comes amid Beijing's warnings that it will take forceful actions if Nancy Pelosi indeed visits Taiwan to show support. A trip that Biden says the military thinks is not a good idea right now. But lawmakers say the U.S. has to deter mounting aggression from the communist regime. Hong Kongers being beaten by police, Uyghurs men, women and children forced into concentration camps. Um, and Taiwanese citizens being threatened with military incursion. The CCP has shown itself to be ruthless, aggressive, and evil dictatorship. They're also backing legislation to avoid delays in delivering U.S. arms already sold to Taiwan. Before the bullets start flying and people start dying, uh, we will avert a war. We, but, uh, we've got to move quickly. His speed is life in that regard. Meanwhile, President Biden said Wednesday, I think I'll be talking to President Xi within the next 10 days. And I asked Congressman Guy Reschenthaler, how do you think the issue of Taiwan could be brought up? Well, the issue should be brought up and there should be no doubt uh, with the PLA and with the Chinese Communist Party that the United States will act to defend Taiwan. And the message to the dictator Xi should be clear that we will support a sister democracy. 
Biden has on several occasions said the U.S. would defend Taiwan in an attack from China. But White House officials have walked back such remarks. And now it's unclear whether Biden's plans to talk to Xi will be affected by the president testing positive for COVID. Reporting Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. And the Senate on Tuesday moved to advance the CHIPS Act. The bill is designed to boost U.S. semiconductor production as an antidote to dependence on China. Earlier today, I spoke with former Undersecretary of State Keith Kroc to understand more about this and the U.S. role in protecting Taiwan and democracy more broadly. Keith Kroc, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me, Stephanie. I really appreciate it. The Senate this week passed the CHIPS Act to boost U.S. production of semiconductors. I'd like to first get your impression of the bill. Do you think it has the potential to cut the U.S.'s dependence on China and Taiwan for these chips? Well, I think this is one of the most important uh, bills that we have because the semiconductor industry is so critical. It's the underlying foundation. It's the most important uh, industry, and I really believe that it does. China is absolutely obsessed. Secretary Xi is absolutely uh, obsessed with the semiconductor business. You know, one of the things that, that we did uh, two years ago when I was under Secretary of State was onshore TSMC, the, the most advanced semiconductor manufacturing uh, company in the world. And that ended up to be a $12 billion onshore. And, it, and not only did it uh, bring along their ecosystem, but also it was the catalyst to write the CHIPS Act uh, with Senator Warren and Senator Corn. And uh, without this bill, it will be really tough to bring uh, United States semiconductor manufacturing back to the U.S. because all these other countries uh, subsidize them. So I think this is absolutely critical. Let's say the CHIPS Act is signed into law and the U.S. increases its semiconductor manufacturing. Do you think the U.S. could lose interest in helping Taiwan protect its national security? And absolutely not. I think what it will do, Stephanie, is it will strengthen it. I mean, look, Taiwan is a linchpin uh, for democracy. It's a role model uh, for freedom. To General Secretary Xi, uh, Taiwan dispel dispels his myth that the Chinese culture can't live under a democracy and he wants it destroyed. So anything that we can do to strengthen our relationship uh, with Taiwan is critical. President Biden said on Wednesday that either he or the military opposes House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's expected visit to Taiwan. That's after China threatened forceful measures against the U.S. if she went. What's your take? Do you think she should go? Well, absolutely, I think uh, Speaker Pelosi should go. You know, in September 2020, I was the highest-ranking State Department official to visit Taiwan in 41 years. I was greeted with 40 fighters and bombers. And, and the purpose was to show support for Taiwan, as well as strengthen the ties by doing the Economic Prosperity Partnership uh, with Taiwan and also a science and technology agreement, ideally leading up to some type of a uh, formal trade relationship. And, you know, there's nothing more that General Secretary Xi fears than a united United States. So I think this is important. And, you know, one of the things I said when I got sanctioned by the Chinese Communist Party for our national security initiatives was, look, I'm not going to bend a, a need Emperor Xi, and I don't think anybody should. And why is Taiwan so important to democracy, as you've mentioned? Well, I think, you know, there's a number of reasons. Number one, from a security standpoint, um, you know, they are in a strategic location, no question about it. Number two is from a prosperity standpoint. They're the eighth largest economy in, uh, in Asia. They are also, uh, you know, obviously home to the most important industry in terms of their semiconductor manufacturing capabilities, plus they're a good friend. Um, and they, they are an absolute linchpin that stands for freedom. So uh, Taiwan's uh, independence is really important. The U.S. approved another round of military aid for Taiwan last week, over $100 million. In your view, do you think it's enough? Well, it's hard to say if it's enough. It's probably, you know, 
it's like anything else. It's probably never enough, but it's very important. And uh, all you have to do is look at Russia and the Ukraine to understand how important that is. And and Stephanie, under the uh, the Taiwan uh, Relations Act, uh, United States has every right uh, to help Taiwan defend their freedom. So I think this is a critical funding. And you know, the last thing we want to do is to be caught off guard. One of the things that I'm seeing uh, in corporate America, I'm seeing some of the uh, probably some of the most prominent board members demanding from their CEOs a China uh, contingency plan because they saw what happened, a number of them with their companies in Russia, and they don't want to be caught off guard again. Uh, and by the way, by the time those actions are done, if they're not done now, it's going to be too late. You've said that the U.S. should recognize Taiwan as an independent nation before Xi Jinping pulls a Putin. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, so if you think about it, uh, with, with Putin's uh, uh, atrocities that he's committing in Ukraine, he's saying that if the United States comes in there and helps him out, he's got his finger on, on a nuclear weapon. Because he, like she, rewrote uh, uh, history by saying, hey, it's all, Ukraine's always been part of uh, Russia. It hasn't. Either has Taiwan been part of China. So he's claiming legitimacy. And that's something that uh, by recognizing them for what they are, an independent democratic nation, uh, uh, that takes that legitimacy away from Xi. Keith Kroc, former Undersecretary of State and 2022 Nobel Peace Prize nominee. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Stephanie. And today, Steve Bannon's defense team made its case. Bannon, former advisor to then-President Donald Trump, is accused of not providing documents or testimony to the House January 6th committee, which is investigating the breach of the U.S. Capitol. The government rested its case on Wednesday after calling a congressional staffer and an FBI agent to the witness stand. Today, Bannon's defense opened by asking the judge for a direct acquittal. They said that prosecutors didn't prove their contempt of Congress case because no reasonable juror could conclude that Mr. Bannon refused to comply with the com committee's subpoena. The judge said he would rule on the acquittal motion later. The defense rested its case without calling any witnesses. And now to NBA free agent and human rights activist Ennis Freedom, who said on Twitter, this is the evidence of how corrupt the NBA is, and posted his interview yesterday with Tucker Carlson. NTD's Dave Martin has more. Ennis Freedom has an insider's view of the NBA after playing 11 years in the league. He's criticized the NBA for supporting Black Lives Matter while remaining silent on human rights atrocities committed abroad by brutal regimes like the Chinese Communist Party. The 30-year-old, who's also been outspoken with the shoes he's worn on the court that feature phrases like free Tibet, free China, and free the Uyghurs, was released by the Houston Rockets in February. He's been unsigned ever since. His stance on China's human rights issues, instead of his play on the court, has been assumed to be the reason why as Freedom's games were banned from being shown in China, a major business partner of the NBA. Wednesday night on Tucker Carlson, the show featured a recording of NBA Players Association lawyer Ron Klempner discussing what specifically was the problem. I got off the phone with the general counsel of the NBA, and he wants to now have a conversation about the, his air concern right now is not so much what you are saying off the court, but what it is that you're saying on the court when you step onto the court. Also featured was a recording of NBA Commissioner Adam Silver about the problem with Freedom's shoes. You're not breaking any rule in terms of the shoes. There's no rule I'm aware of that you're violating now. I, to me, it, you know, I think it's also, look, at the end of the day, we're also a business. Freedom then came on the show and said, quote, this is the evidence of how a 100% American-made company is run by the Chinese dictatorship. The 6'11 free agent remains unsigned. The NBA's season starts on October 19th. Dave Martin, NTD News. 
empowering children to receive transgender treatment. That's what one U.S. official wants to do. But what are the consequences of those procedures? Our reporter spoke with a California man who went through gender transitioning, and he told us what he experienced and how it continues to impact his life. On a Monday appearance on MSNBC, Assistant Secretary of Health Rachel Levine said we should empower kids to get gender-affirming care, which can include hormone therapy and surgical procedures, such as the removal of breasts or genitals. But what happens when someone regrets undergoing such a life-changing procedure? What are the effects on the body and how easy is it to walk back the decision? NTD spoke with Abel Garcia, a California man who underwent surgery to get a female body but later realized it wasn't the right thing to do. He says the path of changing one's sex is a dark one. It leads to a life of pain through chemical and surgical castration. One thing I am able to confirm that I didn't have before I started my transition, but I don't know what it is, is I don't know whether it's nerve damage or if it's a seizure, but the left half of my body shakes on its own. Um, I don't know when it happens, but usually I can, I can tell when it's about to happen. Why did Abel want to become a woman? He says it's because of his circumstances and the trauma he experienced early in his life, not the way he was born. Growing up, I actually didn't really have my father in my life because um, he came here to the U.S. illegally, so he was always working nonstop. Um, I didn't really have a father figure growing up. Um, eventually, he did get a better job that caused him to be gone five, six days a week, so again, still didn't have him in my life. Um, Growing up, I didn't feel adequate as a young boy. I was very shy, quiet, timid, not like your stereotypical boy. Um, I'm also an overthinker, so I think that also might have been a cost to it. I know the point that I realized I needed to transition was when my father took me to a prostitute in Mexico and traumatized me. When Abel went to a psychiatrist to find out whether he was transgender, he was told that he was. He says the psychiatrist prescribed sex-changing medication right away at the first meeting. Two years later, he realized that he made a huge mistake and wanted to detransition, but he couldn't get psychiatrists to sign off on having his breast implants removed, which he says his insurance company requested. He says psychiatrists are afraid the state might accuse them of conversion therapy. Yes, it's very hard to uh, detransition in California. Uh, but it's very easy to transition to California, I would assume, because the therapist that I was having, um, he helped me realize that I'm not a woman, I'm just a man. I've always been a man, and I would assume because California is more liberal in their politics that they don't want people to reverse these surgeries. Abel says he still doesn't know all of the impacts these procedures had on his body. He doesn't know how his fertility was affected, and he says he suffered damage to his genitals because of the medication. Nowadays, there's a big push to support children who think they're transgender. Proponents argue it's empathetic and caring to let them change their sex, but Abel disagrees. These people will tell you it's very compassionate to let these kids start on hormones. It's not. I would just tell these kids that you're you're good as you are. You are you are not transgender. These surgeries will not help you. These hormones will not help you. It will actually cause more damage to your body in the long run. Abel is now actively raising awareness about the dangers of cross-sex procedures to kids. He has a YouTube channel and speaks at events in person. Reporting by Arian Pastar, NTD News. Coming up, we speak to a Hispanic radio star who left a prominent Spanish-language radio station ahead of a planned purchase by a George Soros-backed group. She calls the takeover a stab in the heart of her community. A new education policy, a Catholic diocese, has made it clear that gender should align with the sex assigned at birth. NTD's Arlene Richards finds out whether the policy violates the First Amendment. A growing number of hosts are leaving a Hispanic radio station after a Soros-backed group announced they're planning to take over. The purchase is one of 18 stations across the nation, and it's drawing concern from the station's supporters. Earlier today, I spoke with former Radio Mambi host Lourdes Ubieta, who made the move. She's now on the airwaves with the up-and-coming Americano Media, and she shares her views. 
Lourdes Ubieta, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, you've made a big decision in leaving Radio Mambia ahead of its planned sale. Why'd you do it? Well, because um, uh, I wasn't uh, sure that I wanted to be part of a deal where 18 radio stations goes to a group with uh, um, close ties to a Soros group. So I decided that I didn't want to be a part of this deal, and I just resigned. You've said the plan to take over is a stab in the heart of your community. Could you elaborate on that? Sure, of course, because Radio Mambi is the, um, the biggest fighter of uh, um, against uh, communism and socialism in the in the in South Florida, uh, it's more than two decades that the journalists there are giving a message of hope and freedom and liberty and, and the fight uh, for those uh, values. So that uh, Radio Mambi end up being bought by a group that represent just the opposite of that was uh, absolutely out of the question for me. And I think it's, a, I believe it's a stab right in the heart of our uh, conservative uh, community, victim of communism, not only in Cuba, but also Venezuela and Nicaragua. Radio Mambi reaches many within the Cuban exile community. How do you think yes. they'll respond if the content moves away from their values? Well, um, I, what, I, what I believe is that uh, people is moving to our, to, to our other options of information, and the community is not going to be, definitely, they're not going to be part of, uh, of the deal. As listeners or as uh, buyers or advertisers, they're not going to be part of the deal. Americano Media has said that it's the only non-progressive national media outlet created by and for the Hispanic American community. Do you expect demand for the station to grow if other Hispanic radio stations become more liberal, as you're expecting? Yes, well, Americano is the first and only <laughs> media, uh, conservative media in Spanish. And that can give you a sense of what Hispanics means in the United States, the Latino power, as I call it, and uh, the values of the Hispanics in the, the United States. Hispanics are very conservative. We have uh, values of uh, freedom, family. We want our uh, kids to go to the best schools. We want to have uh, the choice of uh, education, the best education for our kids. We are family-oriented. We have God in our lives. So, so, so we came to the United States um, to overcome, in many cases, uh, the situation in our own countries that um, didn't give us the freedom uh, that we wanted for our lives. So um, Americano is the great, right now is the best option for our community in Spanish. And it has those, represent those values that we Hispanics have. Lourdes Ubieta, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Religious liberty, it's a fundamental right under the First Amendment. But a Catholic diocese has announced a new policy that some say could impact transgender rights. Has the diocese gone too far? NTD's Arlene Richards reports. In several cases, past and present, the conservative majority of the Supreme Court has shown a commitment to protecting religious rights. But a Catholic diocese in Green Bay, Wisconsin, has a new education policy that prohibits the use of pronouns and wearing clothes that don't align with a person's biological sex. NTD asked Jean Polisinski, senior scholar at the Freedom Forum, whether this policy would survive a First Amendment challenge. Polisinski said the answer is simple. The First Amendment only restrains government. And so while the Catholic Church is a large institution, clearly, with uh, you know, wide reach, worldwide reach, it is not government, and therefore they are not bound by the First Amendment. According to Polisinski, the government can't interfere with how a religious institution practices its faith, because then it would be deciding what is a fair and proper faith. What about transgender rights under the First Amendment? 
The First Amendment Law Review, an organization that promotes and protects First Amendment rights, states in an article that transgender people have First Amendment rights too. It argues that the First Amendment also protects expressive conduct. Therefore, it argues gender expression or the way a person communicates gender identity should be protected by the First Amendment. Polisinski explained that the First Amendment stops the government from violating our rights, but it doesn't apply to private institutions. We simply can't force a private institution to go along with what we do. We can't go to court and force them to change what is essentially their core, apparently their core belief. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. A man has been found guilty in the murder of retired St. Louis police captain David Dorn, who died protecting a business from looters amid the 2020 George Floyd riots. 77-year-old Dorn was shot and killed in the early hours outside a friend's pawn shop in North St. Louis. He arrived there in response to an alarm during an evening filled with violence and looting. Dorn retired from the St. Louis police in 2007 after having served for 38 years. He approached the pawn shop and fired warning shots to ward off looters who were ransacking the business. On Wednesday, 26-year-old Stephen Cannon was found guilty of first-degree murder in the retired police captain's death. The lead prosecutor told jurors that Cannon deliberated before firing 10 shots at, quote, a good man who dedicated his entire life to doing nothing but helping others. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up, thousands of practitioners of the Falun Gong spiritual discipline gathered at the U.S. Capitol today. It's the 23rd year they're trying to expose the Chinese Communist Party's attack on their freedom of belief in China. And we'll also hear one Falun Gong practitioner's story of how he did not back down in the face of persecution in China. That and more after this short break. July 20th marked 23 years since the Chinese Communist Party launched an overwhelming persecution campaign to eradicate Falun Gong, also known as Falun Dafa. Today, thousands of Falun Gong practitioners traveled to Washington, D.C. from around the nation to take part in a rally to end the persecution. Here's NTD's Melina Weiskup with the details. Falun Dafa is a spiritual discipline rooted in Chinese, uh, rooted in Chinese in culture, revolved around the principles of truthfulness, compassion, and tolerance. Many of these practitioners Despite believe that it's their fundamental the human right to practice this here or any country in the world, including China, and that's why they're standing here today. What you see behind me is many practitioners from all over the United States who have traveled here for this very important moment. So it's the 23rd year so, of the persecution of Falun Dafa. The Chinese Communist Party has cracked down on this since 19. And one interesting fact dignity, that one practitioner of this discipline told me is that they've been coming here to this very this lawn every single year since 1999, since the, the beginning of, of the persecution. And more than two decades later, their persistence continues with supporters of religious freedom speaking out to end the Chinese Communist Party's attempts to eradicate this peaceful spiritual practice. It is always an honor to join you for these important rallies, but we shouldn't have to be here. Yet, here we are, once again calling on the Chinese government to end its persecution of Falun Gong practitioners and other religious believers in China. One practitioner of Falun Gong tells NTD about her experience growing up in China, where she was fearful every day about her parents and grandma being jailed for their beliefs. Several times the policemen came to my home and they wanted to arrest my mom and they also wanted to know where my grandma was. And every time I hear the sound of knocking the door, I was really afraid that the people outside the door were the police. She tells us her mother was last sent to a brainwashing center in 2018, and the Chinese Communist Party stripped her grandmother of her pension, removing her source of income. But through all the hardship, she tells us why she continued to practice Falun Dafa. I have been a practitioner since I was a child, and I think Falun Dafa is really good, and truthfulness, compassion, and forbearance is right. I think as a human being, I should stick to what I think is right. 
Attendees are calling on the U.S., the leader of the free world, to further expose the persecution of Falun Gong. Many of the speakers called on Congress to pass the Stop Forced Organ Harvesting Act. You, sir, is intently focused on the terrible ongoing reports of forced organ harvesting of Falun Gong practitioners. This must be condemned by our government, governments around the world, and all peoples of good conscience. Falun Gong practitioners generally have healthy bodies due to their meditative exercises. Unfortunately, this has led them to become victims of the Chinese Communist Party's forced organ harvesting. And it's critically important that U.S. health institutions examine their relationships with Chinese hospitals that we have now documented participated in transplantations where they executed the patient. After the rally, the Falun Gong practitioners marched in a parade down Constitution Avenue to raise awareness among bystanders. This tradition they plan to continue until the CCP's persecution has come to an end. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. And NTD's Chenny Wu sat down with a Falun Gong practitioner to hear about what he endured inside a Chinese labor camp and how he found the strength to keep going. Just a warning, some viewers may find the following content disturbing. The situation was really one of life or death. Is it worth giving up my life for justice? This is the question Stephen Yu asked himself when the Chinese Communist Party began its suppression campaign on Falun Gong on July 20th, 1999. But to understand his story, let's start from the beginning. Yu began practicing the spiritual discipline in 1998 after witnessing the miraculous recovery of a friend's mother. Miss Sun was in a critical condition at that time. She had a herniated cervical disc and was on the verge of death. I went to visit because I wanted to say goodbye, thinking it might be the last time we would see each other. But to my surprise, she radiated health. She practically jumped up when I saw her and gave me the book, Zhuan Falun. Zhuan Falun is the primary book of teachings of the Falun Dafa practice. When it was published in 1996, it became a national bestseller in China. I felt like this was something I had been looking for my whole life. When in high school, I was actually already thinking about this. My studies were very intense at the time, and I asked myself if my life would always be in this state. I asked myself, why am I trying so hard in my studies? Is it to achieve some high job position or get rich? But after I read Drumfather, I came to understand the true purpose of life. That is, to improve oneself and eventually return to where we came from, to heaven. The discipline spread quickly across China. In seven years, an estimated 70 to 100 million people were practicing, making it one of the largest spiritual communities in the country. But in 1999, the communist regime deemed the practice's popularity a threat to its power and launched a brutal persecution campaign targeting Falun Gong. On July 22nd, you and other Falun Gong practitioners were taken into custody by police for half a day. He said that at the time, he deeply reflected on the situation and resolved not to give up the practice no matter what. I thought about how a person's life is not valued based on its length. Rather, its value comes from its greater meaning. Even if a person only has a few days to live, if the light he emits can illuminate the entire universe and shine a light into the darkness, then it was a life worth living. In 2000, Yu was again arrested and taken to Chaoyanggo labor camp. He was detained there for around a year. The sanitary conditions were very poor. So many of us were covered with scabies. One practitioner was beaten with wooden boards by non-practitioner inmates. He had all the scabies scars on his body targeted so they would burst open. Then the guards let him grow new ones. They tortured him this way. They would pry off his toenails. By torturing you little by little, they hoped to make you come to the evil side and say bad things about Falun Dafa. Falun Dafa is another name for Falun Gong. You explained why he never gave up. If I, for the sake of living comfortably, gave way to them and said bad things about Falun Dafa, 
then wouldn't that make me the same as those creating the lies? If I gave in to their demands, I would no longer be able to look at myself in the mirror. I wouldn't be able to face what kind of person I would have become. I would rather choose death. After several attempts, Yu was finally able to leave China earlier this year. He arrived in the United States in March. Upon coming to America, I can now, in Chinese or English, tell my story to anyone who is interested. I'm no longer afraid of being taken away by police or of having my calls listened in on. I think that I'm very fortunate, but at the same time, I'm quite disheartened because I don't know how many of my fellow practitioners are currently being illegally incarcerated and tortured, and they could lose their lives at any point. Yu says he will continue sharing his story and working to expose the Chinese Communist Party's persecution of Falun Gong. Chen Wu, NTD News. Coming up, the Housing Department in California is pulling back some funds that were given to tenants and landlords. They say that some funds weren't used as intended. And siblings who were alleged victims of child abuse at a foster home in California are suing. Several of the Turpin children have filed a lawsuit against both the foster agency and Riverside County for allegedly transferring them from one abusive environment to another. Stay tuned for more when we return. Over to the West Coast, a California agency is trying to get back COVID-19 rent relief funds given to thousands of tenants and landlords. They say that it's partly due to overpayment and improper use of funds. California has been asking several thousands of tenants who received COVID rent relief funds to return them months after they've been distributed. According to the Sacramento Bee, the California Department of Housing and Community Development, or HCD, said it sent recapture emails to about 5,400 tenants and landlords. The recipients have 30 to 90 days to return the money. The Housing Department says they're asking for the money back partly due to overpayment, tenants not paying their landlords, and fraudulent activities. It's unclear who has been selected for repayment. In March 2021, the California COVID-19 Rent Relief Program began accepting applications to help Californians with rent and utility bills. Tenants and landlords could request up to 18 months in assistance to cover the time between April 2020 to March 2022. According to the state dashboard from July, 344,066 households were served, receiving on average $12,065 per household. The state did not clarify any consequences for not repaying the funds. And staying in California, in what is being called the most sickening child abuse case in Riverside, attorneys for six of the 13 Turpin children are suing the county. They are blaming Child Protective Services and a foster care agency for placing the children in an allegedly abusive household. Here's more. The Turpin children who were placed into an allegedly abusive foster home are suing for negligence. Back in 2018, the Turpin children were taken from their homes after both biological parents were accused and then convicted of multiple counts of child abuse. The children were then placed by ChildNet, a Long Beach-based foster care agency, into a known abusive foster home. During a span of approximately three years, the children were allegedly subjected to relentless forms of mental, physical, and sexual assault, as well as false imprisonment and other offenses. The filed complaints allege that credible reports of abuse and neglect were documented, but ChildNet and Riverside County failed to address these complaints. Plaintiffs are saying that one of the oldest siblings, Jordan Turpin, had multiple conversations with social workers expressing concerns and asking for help. Elon Zexter, an attorney representing two of the children, said that after these vulnerable children were freed, they were placed by the county through ChildNet into a known abusive foster home. It is beyond shocking that the county and ChildNet let these kids get horrifically abused once again. Attorneys have filed the lawsuit with the Riverside County Superior Court. They are seeking an unspecified amount in damages from both the county and the agency for their negligence and failure to protect the children. Both ChildNet and the county did not immediately respond to requests for comment. Daniel Hall, NTD News, California. 
And according to a recent report, California's unfunded pension liabilities are estimated to be at $1.5 trillion. That's about $38,000 worth of debt for each Californian. A former official explains its impact. John Morlock is a former California state senator who served on the Public Employee Retirement Committee. He explains to California insiders CMAC Korami the impact of unfunded pension liabilities on cities and why he believes liabilities are not dealt with. The pension community, uh, in particular uh, CalPERS, they, they said, oh my goodness, we're, we're fully funded, maybe even a little more than fully funded. We ought to increase benefits. And so they increased them 50% for wow. California Highway Patrol, they went from a formula of 2% at 50 to 3% at 50. Well, if you're fully funded and then you improve your benefits by 50%, you're now two-thirds funded. Unfunded pension liabilities ensure that government employees will receive a set amount of income at the time of retirement. In some cases, people get up to 90% of their current pay for the rest of their life. That means cities need to invest enough money into retirement accounts ahead of time. But since California's pension benefits are very generous, it is hard for cities to keep up with the costs. Let's say you're making 100000 at age 50 and, and you retire. You will get 50000 a year times, or you'll get, let's say it's 25 years, you'll you get 2% times 25, which is 50%, times your earning salary of 100000 So you get 50000 a year for life plus cost of living increases. 3% at 50 says you'll get now 75,000. Three times 25 times the 100,000. And so it wasn't funded for. So if you look at CalPERS for up until two years ago, they were still 71% funded. So we have this massive liability. Morlock says there are cities who have to reduce their staffing in the police or fire departments in order to make pension plan contributions. This in turn affects public safety and better response times from first responders. Other ways cities can make the payments is by filing for Chapter 9 bankruptcy for a shared risk pension plan or increasing sales tax. It's very difficult for a city to find tax revenues. Um, you can raise your hotel tax. You can raise your sales tax. Maybe you could raise licenses and fees. Uh, hopefully, maybe you could do more retail. Uh, and get more sales tax. That's why a city would much rather have a Costco built than a house um, because a Costco will generate an, you know, an incredible amount of sales tax. Morlock says there are two ways to address it. One is to make high contributions above the actuaries. The other option is to take a bit of the budget surplus and put it into the pension plan, something Governor Gavin Newsom tried to do but redacted it to invest in the COVID crisis. To watch the full program, find California Insider on YouTube or Epic TV on the Epic Times website. And coming up, Turkey says a deal has been reached with Russia to allow Ukraine to resume exports of grain through the Black Sea. The move could ease a global food crisis that has left millions at risk of hunger. And it's the end of Mario Draghi's government. After his coalition fell apart, the Italian prime minister resigned, setting the country on course for an early election. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News. Ukraine, Russia, Turkey and the UN will sign a deal tomorrow to resume Ukraine's Black Sea grain exports. A general agreement was reached during talks in Istanbul last week, which the parties will now put in writing. That's according to Turkish officials. The Turkish president's office said that he, the UN Secretary General and officials from Russia and Ukraine will oversee Friday's signing a ceremony. It did not provide further details. Russia and Ukraine are both major global wheat suppliers, but the war has stalled Kyiv's exports, and millions of grain stockpiles have been stuck in Black Sea ports. Restoring the shipping routes could ease a global food crisis that has sent wheat and other grain prices soaring. And gas deliveries through the Nord Stream 1 pipeline from Russia to Europe have resumed. 
Europe can breathe a sigh of relief as not getting that gas would be catastrophic for them. But the gas flows are well below the pipeline's full capacity. NTD's Arlene Richards has more. Russia resumed sending natural gas to Europe through the Nord Stream 1 pipeline on Thursday after it was shut down for 10 days because of maintenance. But the amount of gas Russia is sending is well below capacity. Russia is using its great power, too great a power that we have given to Russia, to blackmail Europe and Germany. German economy minister Robert Habeck says Russia is an uncertainty factor in their energy system. The European Union consumed around 412 billion cubic meters, or BCM, of natural gas in 2021, and Russia, mostly through pipelines, supplied around 38 percent of that. And Nord Stream 1 is the biggest, most important pipeline of all. Last year, it delivered 59.2 BCM, or 14 percent, of all of Europe's natural gas. What Russia is implementing is uh, measures that on the one hand show the European Union that its dependence on uh, Russian gas is very high, and on the other hand shows that they're willing to uh, provide a level of supply that at least doesn't uh, destroy the economy of the European Union. Daniel Lacaye is the chief economist of the Tresses hedge fund, as well as the author of The Energy World, is flat. Lacaye says the EU would face a severe crisis if Russia stopped sending natural gas. Arlene Richards, NTD News. And in Italy, the political situation is worsening. The prime minister has resigned and the government is falling apart, resulting in financial markets taking a hit. Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi handed in his resignation today. The political crisis has ended months of stability in Italy. Now Italian stocks and bonds are selling off sharply. Draghi was considering his resignation last week after one of his partners failed to back him in a confidence vote. The president then rejected his resignation and told him to go before parliament to keep the coalition alive. Apparently it didn't work. Now the country's president has to take the next steps. Political sources say that he will likely dissolve parliament and call for early elections in October. And Sri Lanka's president-elect was sworn in by the chief justice. Ahead of him is the worst economic crisis the country has seen in decades. Inflation, shortages of basic goods and corruption have been plaguing Sri Lanka and its people for months. A lack of foreign currency also led to shortages of the essentials like fuel, food and medicine. Last week, the country's former president ran away and resigned from his post. That sparked mass riots, with hundreds of thousands occupying government buildings in Colombo. The president-elect took office following his victory in Wednesday's parliamentary elections. Prior to that, he served six terms as the country's prime minister. But for some, he's not the best choice for the country's leadership. Protesters even burned down his house this month, when he was still prime minister. The new president has pledged to be a friend of the people. He told reporters that his leadership will be different from that of his predecessor. And a remote Greek island has pioneered a new waste management model and recycling plant. The island now recycles most of its trash and prides itself on being a zero-waste island. Here are the details. Authorities on the remote Greek island of Telos announced this week that more than 80% of the island's trash is now being recycled. A landfill where untreated garbage was once buried into a hillside has been permanently closed. Telos is slightly larger than New York's Manhattan and 15 hours away from the Greek mainland by ferry. The island has just 500 year-round inhabitants. Today is a very important day because imagine that the place we are at was a sanitary landfill that had essentially been turned into a garbage dump. In other words, the work was not done properly. Now you see this. It has no relation to what used to exist here. You can easily come and have a coffee here. Starting in December, Telos piloted a home trash pickup scheme. Residents receive recycling kits and are asked to wash and separate household waste. The island's new recycling plant separates trash to produce powdered glass, cement mix, compressed cardboard, and other reusable items. The plant currently processes around two tons of waste per week. Roughly a third is composted and 15% classed as non-recyclable 
is sterilized and shredded to be used in construction. Our model can guarantee and can succeed these recycling rates as long as the civilians uh, want it and uh, the government provides us uh, a multi-year contract in order for us to ensure that uh, despite of all the possible changes uh, at the elections of the municipalities uh, and the prefectures, we will stay here and we will guarantee the recycling rates. The mayor of Tilos says she's proud of what the island has been able to achieve. The energy project was the culmination of many years of efforts. It was very big, very powerful. There was a lot of funding, and it made our island the first energy-independent island in the Mediterranean, and the first green island in the Mediterranean. The recycling model on Telos could act as a blueprint for other Greek islands, including popular holiday destinations that struggle with waste disposal. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.